Section 31 of Essays on Art. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Zeeva, New York City. Essays on Art by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Translated by Samuel Gray Ward. Section 31. Jason and Medea. The pair of lovers that here stand opposite to each other give us so singular a feeling that we ask with anxiety, are then these two happily united? Who is she whose brow so doubtfully raised above the eye indicates the deep thought that is brewing? Her hair is dressed like that of a priestess, an expression I know not whether to call it enamored or inspired in her look. Methinks I recognize in her one of the Heliades. It is Medea, the daughter of Edes. She stands by Jason, who, through the aid of Eros, has touched her heart. But she seems strangely sunk in thought. What is the subject of her passionate reflection, I cannot tell, but we can see that she is distressed in mind, disturbed in her soul. She stands there shut up in her own thoughts, busied in the depths of her own breast, but not bent on solitude, for her garment is not that she wears during her magical incantations when she enjoys the fearful society of higher powers. She is now dressed as beseems a princess who shows herself to the crowd. Jason has an agreeable countenance, not without manly force. The eye looks sternly out from under the brow, telling of high thoughts and disdain of obstacles. His golden hair falls waving around his face, the fine down is seen upon his cheek. His full garment is gathered in a girdle, a lion's skin falls from his shoulders. He stands leaning on his spear. His expression is not forward, but rather modest, yet full of confidence in his own powers. Cupid standing between them shows the part he took in this mischievous piece of work. He leans upon his bow, with his feet crossed over each other. His inverted torch rests upon the ground, an augury of the evil that this marriage portends. The Return of the Argonauts This picture, my son, needs no commentary, or you can easily make your own. For cyclic pictures possess this advantage, that one leads the way to the next, so that you find yourself in a familiar scene, surrounded by the same persons, only under different circumstances. Once again, you recognize Phasis, the river god. His stream falls, as before, into the sea, but now it bears the ship Argo downwards to the river's mouth. Here, too, you recognize all the persons of its crew. Here is Orpheus, inciting his companions with his harp and voice to bend strongly to the oars. But they need no urging. Every arm is strained to outrun the hurrying stream, well knowing the dangers they leave behind. In the stern of the vessel stands Jason with his glittering spoil. He still grasps his spear for the protection of his beloved. But she does not stand as she did before, noble and high, full of courage and spirit. Her eyes are cast down and filled with tears. Her mind seems occupied with anxiety for the deed that has been done and forebodings of the future. Reflection is painted on her features as if she were considering separately the opposing thoughts in her soul and met them one by one. On the shore you see the explanation of what might otherwise be a riddle to you. A dragon, twisted and wound in many a fold about a pine tree, his heavy head resting upon the earth, Medea has put him to sleep, and thus the golden fleece was stolen away. But lo, Edes has discovered the treachery. You see the angry father upon his war chariot, drawn by four horses, 
a huge man conspicuous above the rest, clad in gigantic armor. His countenance glows with rage. Fire streams from his eyes. He holds in his right hand a blazing torch, showing his intention of destroying ship and crew by fire. His spear is stuck in the hinder part of the chariot, that he may have this means of destruction also at hand. The wildness of the pursuer's air is increased by the tremendous bounding of his steeds. Their nostrils wide open, their necks tossing in the air, their look always full of spirit, now heightened by excitement they pant hard. For Absyrtus, who drives his father, has lashed them till the blood runs. The dust they raise darkens the air around them. Perseus and Andromeda Are not these waves that wash the shore red with blood? Is this an Indian or Ethiopian coast, and what has this Grecian youth to do here in foreign and far distant lands? We see indications that a strange encounter has taken place. A monstrous sea dragon used to rise out of the Ethiopian sea, and coming on the land, slay man and beast. Sacrifices were made, nay, even Andromeda, the king's daughter, must be sacrificed, whom you see now bound naked to the rock for this purpose. But she no longer has anything to fear. The monster lies weltering along the shore, and it is the blood streaming from him that reddens the sea. Perseus came in obedience to the summons of the gods, and by their favor magically armed, but still he did not confide in himself alone, but called in love to hover around and aid him in the airy fight, when he must now sweep down upon the monster and again cautiously retreat. The meed of victory lies between the two, the god and the hero. The god descends in the form of a noble youth to undo the bonds of Andromeda, not as heretofore full of godlike repose and serenity, but as if excited and panting from his late victorious exertions. Andromeda is beautiful. Her skin is fair, though she be Ethiopian. But her form excites still greater wonder. The Lydian maidens are not softer and more tender. Those of Athens have no prouder bearing, nor the Spartan more powerful frames. But her beauty receives its highest charm from the circumstances she is in. She cannot believe she is so happily delivered, yet she turns to smile on Perseus. The hero lies nearby upon the fragrant grass that receives the drops of sweat that trickle from him. He hides the gorgon's head lest someone seeing it be changed to stone. The native herdsmen serve him with milk and wine. It is a pleasant foreign-looking sight to see these Ethiopians with their dark skins laugh and show their teeth and enjoy themselves heartily. They bear a close resemblance to each other in feature. Perseus takes no notice, but, leaning on his left arm, raises himself, panting, and sees Andromeda only. His bright purple mantle flutters in the wind, spattered with the dark stains of blood received in the combat with the dragon. To paint so exquisite a shoulder, the artist must have had for model that ivory one of Pelops, at least so far as regards the form alone, for the flesh color of Perseus's shoulder is heightened by the combat. The veins swell with double life, for after the heated fight, the hero feels a new emotion at the sight of Andromeda. End of section 31 Recording by Zaeva, New York City